Luke chapter 12 tonight, as we continue looking at some of the parables of Jesus from the Gospel of Luke. Luke's Gospel, chapter 12. What I want to point out here is, even though this parable actually falls in the middle of this chapter, I want to remind all of us that this chapter all is connected together. It it all goes together. It's not like sort of separate chunks that are put together. There's a continuity here that we all need to see. And so don't don't separate out the parable uh, of the rich fool from the rest of the chapter because everything that Jesus talks about in this chapter, actually there's a commonality to it, a common theme to it. And it really deals with our view of life and our view of material possessions. And we're going to get to that in just a moment. But like we pointed out last week, context is so important. And there's a lot in the context of leading up to the actual parable tonight, just like there was last week with the parable of the Good Samaritan, that really has a lot for us. There's a lot of rich stuff here that we want to talk about for a few moments before we even get to the parable. So I want to direct your attention to Luke's Gospel, chapter 12, beginning at verse 13 tonight. Beginning at verse 13. You'll notice it says, Someone from the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But Jesus said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator between you two? Now, this is the context before Jesus gives the parable of the rich fool. And let's be reminded here, when Luke tells us that there's a crowd around Jesus, he's not kidding. Because if you go back to chapter 12, look at verse 1. At the beginning of this chapter, it says, Many thousands of people were following Jesus. So many, the Bible says, that they were trampling on one another. Okay? That's a pretty big crowd. That's a mob. I mean, literally, that, that's a mob. And Jesus, seeing this crowd, wants to share a few things. And so the Bible says he first, though, begins to speak in chapter 12, verse 1, to his disciples. Now, he knows that some in the crowd are going to hear what he's teaching the disciples, and he's certainly okay with that. But he's primarily directing his thoughts and his mind to his disciples. But as he does this, here comes this man bursting through the crowd, determined to get a moment with Jesus. Uh, it, it's, it's sort of as if Jesus is sort of like giving sort of like a presidential news conference where somebody's trying to ask him this and somebody's trying to ask him this and he's just fielding questions and all of a sudden this man comes up to him and basically says, We've got a family dispute, Jesus, and I want you to solve it for us. Now, a couple things. First of all, he calls Jesus a teacher, an instructor. He doesn't believe that he's God. He doesn't believe that he's Lord. He thinks he's a good teacher. And like many of the rabbis, if you will, or teachers of the day, many times they did go beyond just teaching and ended up sort of as 
you know, judges in settling things. They were, they were looked on that highly, if you will. Um, and so that's why this man comes to Jesus wanting him to settle a family dispute. He says, tell my brother, let's lay this argument that the two of us have been having over our inheritance to rest. And I believe the implication here is not only is this man in the crowd, but his brother is there as well. And they've been arguing about the family property and the family possessions and how it should be divided up. Things haven't changed over history, have they? Because when people die in a family and things are left and all of that, things can get really ugly in families when it comes to inheritances and wills and who gets what. I think I've shared with you before, one of the, one of the saddest days of my life as a child that I can remember was when my father's mother died. And my, my father's father had been dead for years. And my father had two brothers and a sister. So there were four of them. And I can remember, this was days after my grandmother had even been buried and everything. And they, all, all four of them went over to her house. And I, I can't remember exactly how it came to be that I was able to go with dad or he invited me to go with him or whatever. But I, I rode along. And all I can remember, because I, I was pretty young, was that I heard my father, in, in a sense, just not really arguing, because my dad never really argued with anybody, but just raising his voice a little bit at his brothers and sisters who were raising their voices much louder at each other. And all I can remember is my father walking back to the car, because I was just sitting in the car, and he was weeping and he was crying. And he just said, I'm done. I'm leaving. And I think he just needed to get what happened off his chest because he just starts to tell me that basically they were all fighting over material things that really didn't matter. And they, and they were allowing these material things to come between them, their relationship as brothers and sisters. And he just said, I'm not going to be a part of this and I'm just walking away. You guys can fight over it all. And it just reminds us here of the context of then why Jesus seizes on this common situation and problem with human beings and families and why he ends up giving the parable of the rich fool. But before he does that, I want us to notice a couple things that we can really apply to our own lives here of how Jesus handled this man who asked him, to settle this family dispute. Notice, first of all, in verse 14, that Jesus tells him, no, I'm not going to do that. And think about it, because Jesus is in the midst of this crowd, and I'm sure there was pressure and there was expectation about, yeah, if he's such a great teacher, ever he needs to do this. And one of the things that we learn from this is that it's okay for us as Christ's followers, just as Jesus did, sometimes to say no. In fact, it's even spiritual to say no. 
And just because someone says yes to everything doesn't mean they're more spiritual than those who've learned to say no. We've got to say no and learn to say no and not allow the pressure and the expectations of others to force us to do things that God doesn't maybe want us to do. And that was Jesus. He basically refused this man's request. said, I'm not doing it. Because everything that we say yes to, we say no to something else. And we have to learn that if we're going to say yes to all these things, that means we're saying no to other things or something else because we can't do it all. Which is why Jesus teaches his disciples to narrow the focus of our lives. We've talked about this many times. How we need to find out what God wants us to do and focus on that and not be so easily distracted by all these other things. Which brings me to my next point. The reason why Jesus refused this man's request was not because he wasn't qualified to make a decision between family members. In fact, Jesus being who he is is God could have made the best decision. He, above everyone else, would have known exactly all the details of the situation. And if anybody could have settled this dispute and done it justly and fairly and competently, it would have been Jesus. No human being would have rendered a better decision in this this matter than Jesus would. But just because Jesus could have done it didn't mean Jesus should have done it. And again, the same thing is true with us. Just because we could do something doesn't mean we should do something. Because Jesus is modeling something for us here. He had a calling on his life. And this request did not fit in with that calling. And because of that, it was very easy for Jesus to say, no, that doesn't fit in with what my Father has called me to do. That's not why I'm here. I'm not here to settle family disputes. That's not my calling. That's not my focus. Notice, Jesus doesn't say, you know what, Uh, I need to pray about that. He didn't even need to pray about it. Because he knew that wasn't my calling. That's not what I'm supposed to be engaged in. Could I do it? Absolutely. Nobody was more qualified to do this than Jesus. Should he do it? No. And it's a great filter for us of how we should live our lives like Jesus. That it's okay to say no and to filter things through the calling that God has placed on our lives and not allow all these other things to come in. Even things that we could do aren't always things that we should do. And the other thing I want to say before we move on is this. And I'll preface it by saying it this way. Was Jesus willing to minister personally, one-on-one to individuals and meet them right where they are? Absolutely. He did that all the time. Whether it was Nicodemus or the woman from Samaria or whatever. But that was when there wasn't anybody else around. 
And just like us, Jesus will certainly meet us and minister to us individually. But at this time, while he's on earth, this wasn't a time for this man to totally monopolize the attention of Jesus. There was a crowd around. By him asking Jesus to do this, this was a very selfish request. There's all these other people around, thousands of people, and yet he wants Jesus to basically just set aside all these other people and take time just for him. And Jesus isn't going to succumb to that. What Jesus is going to do as the master and as the master teacher is use this opportunity to teach a much broader and general application of of something that deals with the request of the man rather than dealing with the man's selfish request itself, which is what the parable of the rich fool is all about. See, Jesus isn't going to just focus on this man right now because he's being selfish. What he is going to do is he knows his audience and he knows the opportunity he has. So what he is going to teach is going to be something that every one of those thousands of people in that crowd, how they could benefit from it. And that's why he goes on in the parable then, or in in this moment, to say to them this. Verse 15. Then he said to them, Watch out. The word means to be aware always. Continuously. Be aware of something. And then he says, guard yourselves. It means to exercise unbroken vigilance as a military guard. We've seen this term before in the New Testament. So both terms basically speak about, you know, vigilance, watchfulness, alertness, awareness, And what is it that Jesus says we should always be vigilant and aware and and watchful about? All types of greed. The word greed means a desire to always have more. And Jesus says this desire to always have more can take many forms and has many types to it. In other words... It can grab a hold of our lives. It has many tentacles, if you will, like an octopus. It can come at us this way or that way or that. And that's what this whole chapter is really about. Is Jesus is master, masterfully showing us how greed can sort of show up in our lives in all different ways. The desire to have more. Or the desire sort of to focus on things, material possessions, rather than focusing on the spiritual part of man. And by Jesus saying this, I think in a way, though he's not calling this man out per se, he's basically saying, and the motivation for why you asked me that question, man, was because of your greed. Because this inheritance, the only thing, the the reason it means so much to you is because you have a desire to have more material possessions. That's what's motivated you to come in this crowd and ask me this question. And then Jesus goes on to say, Because one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Jesus is simply saying, look, 
life and how we define life will affect our choices and decisions of how we live life. How do we define life? Jesus is saying, as a follower of his, we should never define life as equal to material possessions, physical things, temporal things. Jesus says they don't equate. The word life here is the Greek word zoe, not the word bios, which just means physical life, where our heart is beating. He's just simply saying the highest quality of life, abundant life as God sees it, has nothing to do with how much we have materially. It doesn't equate. And yet many people today, throughout history, and even many Christians struggle with this. They equate life with material things. But Jesus says we should not define life that way. So again, let me say, one of the major things that Jesus is teaching, even before he gets to this parable, is this. How you and I define life is going to affect how we live life. What is our personal definition of life? If, if someone was to ask you, I want you to write down, how do you define life? What would you say? Because Jesus is saying, too many people define life as life's all about how much I can accumulate. You know, how many material possessions I have. What kind of cars and house and all these things. Jesus says that's how most people define life. Therefore, no wonder then if that's how they define life, they make the choices and decisions that they do in life. Because how we define life is going to drive and fuel the choices and decisions that we make. And so this is one of the big things Jesus is teaching here. What is our definition of life? With all of that, then he says to them this parable. The field of a certain rich man produced an abundant crop. So he thought to himself, what should I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. Then he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to myself, you have plenty of goods stored up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, celebrate. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded back from you. But who will get what you have prepared for yourself? So it is with the one who stores up riches for himself, but is not rich toward God. By the way, before we even get into this parable, I wanted to share this as well. If you go back up to verse 15, the word abundant there means surplus or exceeding what is necessary. And many Christians even say, well, this parable really doesn't apply to me because I don't consider myself wealthy or rich. I think if we were honest, we would all say that we have things that aren't absolutely necessary. 
You see? And that's what Jesus is getting at. If any of us have more than what is absolutely necessary, then this applies. And can I say that uh, even last night, I was reminded of how materially blessed we are in America. Uh, whenever I heard the story of Pastor Olachea's church down there. Let me give you an example. And one that was like, oh man, if we would have just known that. And I realized, providence of God, you know. But I was told last night that several months ago, there was a piece of property next to the church property down there that would have been a great place for them to have parking. They have no place to park. They literally have to bus everybody in to the church, okay, from distance. And here's how much that property uh, was, was being sold for. $300. I told the person, I said, if I would have known that, I'd have given Pastor Olache $300 so he could have bought that land down there and they could have had a parking lot, but we didn't know. But the point is, I, I, when I hear things like that, oh my goodness. You know, the average salary down there is $100 a month. And just to let you know, those people down there, they're willing to put the sweat equity into this place. They're, they're showing up and they're working. The thing that they're lacking is just, again, the funds to be able to get the materials that they need to do the work. That's where we can help. So anyway, we have an abundance of possessions. So we need to be careful that we do not get caught up in the desire to always have more. <laughs> that our desire focuses more on wanting more of God than it does things that are material. Jesus calls this man a fool in verse 20. The word means living as if God doesn't exist. Or one who disregards God. That's a fool. And throughout the parable, Jesus is basically showing us different ways that this man is foolish. For instance, one way, right from the top that this man is foolish, is he fails to see where his wealth really comes from. It really all, the reason he has everything is because God gave it to him. Not because he was... Notice the Bible says the ground or the field or the land produced a crop. Did he have anything to do with how fertile the ground was? No. Did he have anything to do with the rain that came and watered the ground that his crops were in? No. He had nothing to do with that. But he didn't give God the credit for it. He gave himself credit for it. It's one of the ways that this man was a fool. It says, Jesus says, the land or field of a certain man produced an abundant crop. It yielded a plentiful harvest, fruitful. But here's a problem. 
Again, verse 17. He thought to himself, bad to do that. Because basically what that means is he had no filter of figuring things out and reasoning through things other than himself. He did not allow any divine influence, any influence from God to affect his choices and decisions. He was a man left to himself. And the Bible says that's a foolish way to live. In fact, the Bible even says that in the multitude of even other human beings, counselors, advisors, there is safety, there's wisdom in having people around you that you can turn to even besides and beyond God But don't sit there in isolation, just you, and make decisions. That's never good just to be the end-all, be-all. There's so many other perspectives and things that might be considered that we might be blind to it. So one of the other ways this man was foolish is because he thought to himself, And didn't allow anyone else in to maybe give him any kind of influence. And then he says in verse 17, What should I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. To gather them. To amass them. In fact, in verse 18 he says, Well, I'll do this. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store, I will collect all my grain and my goods. Another way this man was foolish isn't even how he handled all of these abundant resources. He thought that all these abundant resources were were given to him so that he could just collect them and amass them and store them rather than use them and invest them in maybe blessing others and investing in eternal things. It's another way this man was foolish. God doesn't give us things to store and collect and a mass. That's not what God does. That, that's not His intent in blessing us. When He gives us things, He gives them so that we will use them for His glory, for other people's profit and benefit, to bless others, to invest in eternity, but not to sit there and just store, store, store. And then here he goes again, verse 19. I'll say to myself. He talks to himself a lot, doesn't he? He says, you have plenty of goods stored up for many years. A lot of numerous material possessions. But here's another way this man was foolish. In his presumption. He thought that he was going to hold on and possess these goods forever. And he gave no thought to how long he was going to be around to enjoy all of these material possessions. He presumed in how he lived life that I'll have all these things and I'll be around to enjoy all these things. And that's a very foolish way to live. And then he goes on to say, because I'm set, you know, I've set myself up. I then can relax, eat, drink, and celebrate. The problem is, even in this, these words, 
the, the, the meaning and, and implication of these words is he really isn't going to relax and enjoy what he has. Because that's the way people who have more and more and desire to have more live. They be, their desire to always have more drives them so much that the things that they do amass and collect and store, they never really get to enjoy. Because it's always drive, drive, drive to get to a higher economic, you know, social status or whatever to where they can't really even enjoy what they've already got. So that's another foolish way to live. At least, if we're going to have things, at least take the time to relax and enjoy them. Rather than always be putting our head down going, well, what, what I got the next thing. But what about all these things? When was the last time you enjoyed that or this or whatever? And that's one of the things that Jesus is pointing out here. This man wasn't really going to relax. He was just taking a break and pausing because, again, greed is always the desire to have more. And greed is never satisfied. The desire to have more is, it, it's, it's deceptive. It's like, well, if, if I just have that, we'll be happy. And then we get that. And then it's like, well, now I need that. So it's just, it's a constant drive. But God said to him, you fool, you're living as if God doesn't exist. You're living as if you're disregarding God. And one other thing then Jesus is going to say right here. Oh, and by the way, the way we live life now is also not just based on how we define life and what life is to us, but something else big in this passage. The second big thing in this passage is that you and I will live life based upon our own conviction about what the future holds. If we truly believe that this is our future or this is what the future is, then it's going to change the way we live our lives here and now. If we have a certain concept or conviction about the future, though, that doesn't involve an eternal kingdom of God and, and standing before Jesus giving an account for our lives and, you know, holding a role in the kingdom of God forever based upon our faithfulness or devotion or consecration to Christ. Now, if those things aren't part of our future, then obviously we're going to choose and decide for different things. But if we truly believe that's in our future then that's going to affect the choices and decisions we make here and now. Which is why Jesus says, this very night, your life will be demanded back from you. Now, this is fascinating, so I want to take some time here to, to examine this tonight. First of all, the word life here does not, again, speak about his physical life. That's not, I mean, even though he's physically going to die in the parable, that's not what Jesus means by this word. It means his eternal soul or his distinct identity. Jesus is going beyond the physical and saying who you really are 
who God created you and meant for you to be. Your eternal soul, not your body. That's being demanded back. And why does Jesus phrase it that way? Because Jesus is reminding all of us in this parable that God has literally entrusted to us for a brief time while here on earth our distinct identity. And we are held accountable to God for how we have lived and in a sense fulfilled and used our unique identity that He gave us when He created us. Wow. I don't know how many Christians ever really thought of it that way. But that's what Jesus is saying here. He's saying that when God created us, He gave us a distinct identity. And that's a stewardship. That's something that He entrusted to us. And yet, notice Jesus says God's going to demand that back one day. In the sense that we're held accountable for how we have fulfilled that. That's why it's so sad that many even Christians go through life and never really focus on doing what God wants them to do and living the will of God in their life. But they live what they want to because then they never really show the identity that God had for them. That's never realized. And that's one of the things that Jesus is reminding us all about here in this parable. He says, your life will be demanded back from you. And then he says, oh, and something else. <laughs> Who will get what you prepared for yourself? Did you ever think of that? Who's going to be in possession of all these abundant material possessions that you leave behind because you can't take it with you? Wouldn't it have been better to invest and share and use these things rather than keep storing them up? Because you're going to die one day and you're going to have to leave all these things behind. And you're going to, who's, who's going to use them? Sort of gives us a different perspective, I think, maybe on God's perspective of things. And even things that we leave behind. Maybe it's better that we don't leave a lot behind. In fact, from a purely physical and material perspective, did Jesus leave anything behind when he left earth? He really even had nothing to give. Materially. But he left so much more behind than that. And so he ends by saying this. So, it is with the one who stores up, who builds up, who accumulates riches for himself and is not rich toward God. Listen, Jesus isn't saying, 
God wants your money or that God wants your material possessions. God doesn't need any of it. What the phrase rich toward God means is living in union with God so that as He does bless us and give us material things, we use them to give Him glory, build up our brothers and sisters, and reach people for Christ. In other words, we use them to invest in eternal things. And as Jesus said earlier in the Gospel of Matthew, lay up treasure in heaven rather than treasure on the earth. Because when you and I live in union with God, we'll recognize that we have everything that we need anyway. And that God will make sure that we have all that we really need, and therefore we're abundantly supplied. But I don't want you to miss this, because I I want you, hopefully, maybe to read this entire chapter, or study it. I just want to go on one more verse. Because again, I want you to see tonight that this parable does not stand in isolation in this chapter. This parable is part of the whole teaching of this chapter that Jesus gives on material possessions and greed and all of that. And now he says in verse 22, Then Jesus said to his disciples, Therefore, that word means, I'm building now something on what I just talked about. So that the parable of the rich fool is just continuing, but in a different application. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, or about your body, what you will wear. For again, is there not more to life than food and more to the body than clothing? Now Jesus is saying, when you worry about material things and physical things, and when you and I are anxious about those things, that's another way that in a sense we're displaying an attitude of greed. Because we're more focused on material things and physical things than we are on spiritual things. When we allow ourselves to worry and be anxious and troubled with care about material things that God already says, I'll take care of you. My Father takes care of the sparrows. My Father takes care of the animals in the animal kingdom. My Father will take care of you. Are you not worth more to God Then they, yes. So that's why Jesus ties all of this together here. So two things tonight. I think Jesus would say, I want to leave sort of laying on the surface of your mind to ponder and contemplate and meditate. One, What is our definition of life? How do we define life? Jesus says life, as God sees it, is not about possessions. That's not how God defines life. So how do we define life? Because how we define life is going to affect how we live life. And then secondly, the other sort of big principle here 
is all about how I, you know, use and view the material possessions that I have and even how presumptuous I am in my future. And what is my view of the future? Do I really think I'm going to be around forever and I'm going to have all these things forever? Or do I have another view of the future, which then is going to obviously affect my choices and decisions down here on earth as well? How we define life and how we view the future are the two big things that Jesus says is really going to determine how we live life and even how we relate to material things and physical things while we're here on earth. What a great parable of Jesus. And next week, hope you'll come back because we've got more good parables to do for the next couple of weeks we're together. Let's pray. God, we thank you for such clear teaching from our Lord here. How he took the request of this man who was so focused on family property and family possessions that obviously was destroying a relationship with his own brother. And God, that's what happens many times. Material, physical things destroy relationships. God, help us not to live with greed. Help us to heed the admonition of Jesus here to always be aware, to always be vigilant and watchful that greed doesn't creep into our life in any form, no matter what it is. Help us, God, not to want the desire for more things, but to want the desire for more of You. Help us to seek first the kingdom of God and pursue You above everything else. And those physical, material things will fall into place. And God, we even see that, in a sense, fleshed out in the history now of our own church. Because, Lord, this was a group of people that were never focused on buildings and land and all of that. We were focused on You and worshiping You and growing in You and reaching other people. And yet, God, in Your perfect timing... Because our focus wasn't on things. You blessed us with something miraculous, God. And that's the way you work. As long as we keep our focus where it needs to be, the material and physical things will come. But God, help us never to get our primary focus on them. Because, Lord, that's not what life is all about. One day, God, just like this person in the parable, one day our eternal soul, our distinct identity is going to be demanded back and given back to you. So God, help us tonight to live with eternity in view every day. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Guys, thanks for being here tonight. We'll see you on Sunday.